I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, though they're through their word, that they will may that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and love them even as you love me, Father. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may have may have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love that which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. You might have picked up on the theme uh, for this week. Uh, We're talking about unity. Um, Everything that Stephanie prayed for just now, Stephanie, thank you uh, for reading and and leading us through that psalm and in that prayer. Everything that she prayed for, I would echo. Um, But nevertheless, before we come to this passage, would you bow your heads one more time uh, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we thank you uh, for your word. Um, Father, I would um, simply give you thanks that because I agree and would echo everything that Stephanie prayed for and because it is also a mystery to me, um, it just emphasizes to us the need for your spirit um, to teach us what unity is, the way Jesus talks about it, and to work it uh, in, in this body. Um, Thank you that you have, again, not just um, invited us, but have commanded us to come before you and to pray and to lift up the things that are on our hearts. Um, And what we most want is that thing that you have promised to do, that as your word goes out, as it is read, as it is preached, um, Holy Spirit, um, would you uh, cause it to do its work in us? Would you mold us into the likeness of your Son? Would you make us more and more his body uh, with him as our head? Father in heaven, we lift these things up to you. Uh, We ask uh, in the name of your Son. And I pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, and we are continuing um, with uh, the last chapter, the end of the Upper Room Discourse, this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed. Um, And in particular, as we moved into chapter 17, um, we have, have moved onto the precipice of something truly mysterious and truly glorious. Um, As I said last week, in this prayer, what is often referred to as the high priestly prayer uh, of of Jesus here in chapter 17, we get to listen in on a conversation among members of the Trinity as we hear the Son of God, the Word made flesh, pray uh, to his Father in the power of the Spirit. Uh, It is is a mind-boggling thing. Um, This should not... 
<laughs> we, we almost feel like we should not be here, right? We are not worthy uh, to hear this, and yet we are. We are hearing this by God's grace. Um, and whereas last week, Jesus was praying um, for his disciples, for these 12, uh, actually these, these 11 men, um, because Judas has left to betray him at this point. Um, last week, he was praying for them. This week, he turns a corner. Um, and he prays for us, like us specifically in this room, us. Um, Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, said that when you get to Galatians 2.20 and you read, uh, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, he said, you should shout that word me. You should put it in bold capital letters. The Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. It's personal, right? And, and here it's kind of the same thing, only it's, uh, it's the first-person plural pronoun. It's us. Um, it's us that Jesus is praying for. Um, this is an amazing thing, um, that he prays specifically for those of us who would believe through the word of his disciples. Right? Um, the only reason that we have these words um, is that John, one of his disciples, wrote them down, remembered this conversation, remembered this prayer, um, and wrote it down, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit has caused it to be preserved um, and, and to stay with the church and to be used in worship uh, and to kindle faith for 2,000 years. Uh, and we still have it. This is an amazing gift that God speaks to us in His Word. Um, Paul says that our faith comes by hearing. Right. So if, you, if you're a Christian, if you would say you're a Christian in this room, a, a, a big part of why... Um, is because you have heard this word. And so you are among those for whom Jesus is praying, those who would believe through the word of his disciples. That's who he's pray, praying for. This is um, a truly amazing thing uh, for us to look at. And what is it that he prays for? He prays for unity. He prays for something that he had already prayed for last week. I, I mentioned this in verse 11 last week. We saw him pray for his disciples uh, that they may be one even as we are one. Uh, the we there, of course, this is, this is the Son speaking to the Father, right? And I said last week, that, that's kind of a mind-blowing thing, that he prays for them to be one even as we, two persons of the triune God, are one. Um, I said, hold, hold that thought because we're going to come back to it because that's really what he's praying for this week. He prays the same thing for us, that we may be one, even as they are one. Um, here's what we're going to look at in this, in this passage. I, I, I want us to look at what is unity, the way that Jesus talks about it. And we're really only going to be able to sketch this, right? We'll, we'll kind of we'll give a definition. Um, we'll look at, at, you know, what Jesus says about it right here in this text, you'll see it gets us into some really deep waters real fast. Um, but we're just going to put that out there pretty briefly. And then I think it's going to be helpful for us before we unpack it, before we ask the question of, okay, so what does that really mean? Um, how does it work in our lives? I think it'll be helpful if, having said what it is, if we actually talk a little bit about what it's not. Right? Talk a little bit about what um, what unity doesn't mean. Um, and then we'll wrap up, we'll come back and say, okay, so what does this mean for us, um, practically speaking? What does it do? Okay, so we're going to look at what unity is, 
and then what unity isn't, and then what does unity do? How does it, how does it work? All right, so first of all, what is it? Jesus talks about unity in this passage uh, as being two things. On the one hand, it's an organic unity because we are united to him. Okay, so we are united to Christ. That's the basis of the unity. But on the other hand, it is also a unity that manifests itself um, in a common worship, a common love, a common adoration of the Father. Let me start with that second one first, okay? So Augustine, in writing The City of God, um, actually said this is a good way to describe any people, um, any culture, any nation, like any people that you would say there's a unity. Um, what he says is, he says, a people, we may say, is a gathered multitude of rational beings united by agreeing to share the things they love. In other words, what he's saying is, at the heart of any people, any nation, any culture, um, there's some common agreement to say something or someone is the most lovable thing, the most worthy thing, the thing that's most worthy putting at the center of your lives and ordering everything else around it, right? Um, it, it can, it's kind of interesting to think about all the different subcultures that you might inhabit where this is true, you know, where... The center of a given subculture, you know, might be, might be money, might be education, um, might be like, you know, really arcane uh, devotion to the lyrics of one particular rock band. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that people can kind of order their lives around, right? Um, but for Augustine, that's the thing that makes a people a people and that unites them. It's that common object of love. So he's writing this in the city of God, right, his, his ginormous magnum opus, um, in which he says, there are two cities created by two kinds of love. The earthly city, created by self-love, and the heavenly city, created by the love of God. Right? That's the difference between the city of man and the city of God, is, is what they're ordered around, the common object of love. Um, look at what Jesus says in this passage. Um, in this passage... When he talks about us being one, he describes our unity as entering into the Trinity in its circle of mutual glorification, this, 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 this circle of love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So look at, uh, he, 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 he describes this kind of unity in, in three places, and conveniently it's, it's the even-numbered verses, right? So 22, 24, and 26. In verse 22, he talks about the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. In verse 24, um, he says, I pray that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. And in verse 26, he prays that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Right? So one of the ways he talks about our unity is that we are bound together by glorifying the Father, just like he does, by worshiping the Father, just like he does, by saying worshiping and glorifying the Father is what we're made for. But he also describes our unity in this organic way, that the basis of our unity is that we're united to him. 
Um, if you look again at the same verses, actually, you know, again, he prays that, they, that we may be with him where he is in verse 24. And in verse 26, he said that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Right? He goes further. He says the basis of this unity is that I am in them. Um, these two things are, are connected, right? This being united to Christ and being united in having God um, as our common object of love, common object of worship. These things are, are connected because of who God is. God is eternally a relationship of love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? God has never, the Father has never been without the Son. Lover and beloved and the love between them, the Spirit, have always existed uh, in, in eternity. Um, and to be united to Christ is to be taken right into that, right into the center of that. Um, here's how one theologian put it. This is Leslie Newbegin. Bradley and I have been reading his commentary um, throughout our study of, of John um, and found it really helpful. Um, Newbegin says, the unity that Jesus is talking about here is we are taken up into that mutual honoring which is a participation in the being of God. Um, we talk about being united to Christ in particular because, of course, he's the one that took on our nature, right? He's the word made flesh. He took on our nature. He stood in our place. Uh, he died the death that we were supposed to die. Uh, he is raised to new life. Paul says that if we're united to him in that death, we're also united to him in his resurrection. So we talk about being united to Christ in particular, but to be united to Christ is to be united to God and to be taken up. Uh, into that mutual glorification, that mutual love relationship that has existed and will exist for all eternity. That's, that's the unity that Jesus is talking about. Like I said, deep waters, pretty fast. Um, and as I said, before we unpack that a bit and talk about, okay, but what does that really mean? What does that really look like in our lives? What does that do? How does it work? Um, I think it's helpful for us, I think it's clarifying, for us to talk a little bit about what the unity Jesus is talking about is not. Because unity is something that we hear a lot about, not just in the church. I mean, unity is sort of universally um, held up as being a good thing. Like, you know, who's against unity, right? We want to be more united. Um, but the nature of unity that we hear about um, is not what Jesus is talking about here. And, and, and I think it's good for us to be clear about this. Um, I want to talk about three kinds of unity that is not what Jesus is talking about. Okay, we're going to talk about sort of a, a democratic unity, um, what we might call an imperial unity, and finally a religious unity. Let me start with democratic unity. This, this, is, this is the one that probably just sort of instinctively makes the most sense to us. Um, you know, if you've, if you've grown up in the U.S., if you've grown up in the West, um, you're used to thinking about unity um, on the basis of commonly held beliefs and commonly held values, um, according to which we would, we would collaborate towards some common vision, 
of what society should look like, right? And that's, that's the basis of unity. Um, when I quoted Augustine earlier, some of you might have thought, I feel like I've heard that quote before. Um, and that might be because exactly that passage was quoted by President Biden in his inaugural address two years ago. Um, here's what he said uh, two years ago, January. He said, many centuries ago, St. Augustine wrote that a people was a multitude defined by common objects of love. What are the common objects we love that define us as Americans? I think I know. Opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, the truth. Right? Um, that's a really good encapsulation of this kind of democratic notion of unity, that we are bound together by these commonly held values on the basis of which we work together towards a common vision. Um, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Um, that can be a really good thing. It can be a really powerful uh, thing. Um, but the problem is that it's a very fragile thing. Um, it only works if we do, in fact, have commonly held values and a commonly held vision of where we should be going. Um, and and I, I shouldn't have to convince you that it's fragile. Um, just look around. Um, how is this working for us? Are we united as a people um, in a commonly held vision? We're more divided than we've ever been um, as a country. And more and more often, we find ourselves looking across the aisle and finding, instead of commonly held beliefs, we find ourselves going, wait, you believe what? Your, your vision for society is what? Um, and so we're divided uh, by this. Um, this is not the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. Um, and, and actually, it's really easy to prove that Jesus is not talking about unity on the basis of commonly held um, beliefs or commonly held values. Um, to be clear, of course we have a commonly held faith, right? There, are, there, there is a faith that we hold in common. But, but we all know that beyond that faith, there's a lots of different ideas about how exactly that should be worked out uh, inside of the church. Um, and it's really easy to see uh, that, that Jesus is not working on that kind of unity because look at the people that he called to be his disciples, right? Among them was a zealot, which is somebody who is willing to use violence to overthrow the Roman, Roman government, um, and a tax collector, who's someone who's working for the Roman government, right? And he somehow gets these guys together for three years, and they don't kill each other. Um, it's amazing. Um, the unity that he's calling for um, is not unity on the basis of, of freely chosen uh, values and a, and a, common, a common project. Um, Michael Horton, uh, the theologian uh, says this uh, about, about this idea. He says, what this means is that the church is not a club for those with similar tastes or political views or ethnic backgrounds or moral leanings. We don't meet because we share a hobby called spirituality. We gather to be regularly reconstituted as the body of Christ, receiving Christ as our living head. The church is not made up of people I chose to be my friends. God chose them for me and me for them. They are my family because of God's choice, not mine. 
we are given to each other. Not on the basis of having chosen one another. That would not have happened. We are given to each other on the basis of God's choice. So this is, this is the first kind of unity that is not what Jesus is talking about. Um, let me talk next about imperial unity. What do I mean by that? So imperial unity, you know, the way empires deliver unity is they say, listen, on the basis of our strength, we can give you peace, right? Pax Romana, right? But there's a cost, which is that you assimilate to our way of doing things. You adopt our culture, our language, our gods. Uh, you, you, you assimilate. If you look uh, at the, the first chapter of Daniel, okay, so in Daniel 1, the Babylonian Empire has just sacked uh, Jerusalem. They brought a lot of the Jews back to Babylon. And what you see happen, uh, we meet Daniel and his three friends. Um, and uh, because uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to go and get um, all of the men of noble birth, the men of high education, um, and teach them our ways, right? In other words, he's saying, go get the elites. Go get the people who would be the most likely to cause us problems later and assimilate them into our culture. Make them Babylonians, right? This is how empires work. This is how they, this is how they deliver unity, by assimilation. Um, the church is at its most dangerous and will be its most hated when it refuses to assimilate. Um, but I also want us to realize that there's a way in which the logic of assimilation can work its way into the church, that we can be duped into thinking that that's actually how we will be united um, as a people. Um, the way this works in the church is usually not that you have one group, one culture saying, we're the ones who are superior and everyone else needs to come and do things our ways. It's not as explicit as that. Usually, the way it works uh, in the church um, is that one culture is simply understood to be normal, just the normal way of doing things. And every other way of doing things is a variation on that norm. There's a story at the beginning of um, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. He talks about going to seminary, and he meets one of his classmates, um, an African-American man uh, with whom he's remained friends, ministry partners uh, throughout his career. But he says, you know, right there in the first year of seminary, um, as we got to know each other, I was at one point chastised by this guy who said to me, you know, Tim, I get the sense that you don't realize that the white evangelical tradition you've grown up in has a way of doing church. You know, because you talk about the African-American tradition of preaching and, and of worship and about how much you love it, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you love it, that's great, um, but you don't seem to understand um, that you also have a way of preaching um, and of worship. You seem to think that your way of doing things is just the way, the normal way of doing things, and that everything else is a variation on that. And the problem with that assumption um, is that what it ends up doing is it ends up demanding that if anyone wants to be a part of our church, of course, the way they have to do that 
is by assimilating, uh, by coming in uh, to, to our way of doing things. Those words will never be said out loud. That's not how this works. Um, it's more subtle than that. Um, it, is, it is unspoken. Um, it is even largely invisible. Um, that's what makes this so pernicious uh, and so dangerous and so hard to see. But it is, it is clearly not what God thinks the church is supposed to be. Um, three different times in the New Testament, Paul uses the image of the church as a body, and then Peter does it one time. So we got four different places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Um, in all of those places, the church is described as being a body with many parts that are very different from each other, and they're all essential. They're all needed as they are. Um, Ed Clowney, in his book, The Church, says this about this. He says, Paul's image of the body of Christ offers profound insights. All the members are needed. Gifts are for the body as a whole, and isolation is tragic. And diversity of function produces not division, but unity. The logic of assimilation is really powerful, and it's really hard to see. Um, are we, as a church, praying that we might be able to see how it's at work among us? Um, we've been having these, these conversations um, in the Micah 6-8 initiative uh, for the last few years, and I think at this point, um, we, have, we have well demonstrated that we don't know how to have these conversations. Um, they are hard. They are uncomfortable. Um, and we're kind of at a point now where we say, well, what do we do? My invitation to you would be simply, would you pray? Would you pray that God would show us what to do? Would you pray that God would help us to know how to have these conversations so that we could at least see ourselves better? Um, I don't know what direction these things should take. That's where we are right now. We need to pray um, that God's Spirit would help us to see ourselves and to know where he wants us to go for the sake of the unity of this body. Um, the last kind of unity that Jesus is not talking about here would be religious unity. So if the logic of the democratic unity is common vision and the logic of imperial unity is assimilation, the logic of religious unity is purity, right? So the Pharisees were really good at this, right? They came up to, to Jesus and said, why, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? Why are they breaking the Sabbath? Unclean, unclean, right? Um, so there's these, these purity tests. Um, but there are secular forms of this as well. I remember 25 years ago when I was heading off to college, um, what everybody was worried about, Christians, what Christians were worried about was relativism, right? They thought that we were becoming this really relativist society in which everybody would have their own truth and you know, what's good for me is good for me, what's good for you is good for you, live and let live. Um, that has not happened. Uh, that is not where we are now. We, we have wound up living, ironically, in maybe the most puritanical society. Um, I hesitate to use puritanical negatively, the historians would get on me for that. Um, but we live in a society, 
all you have to do is go on Twitter and just venture to say something that you believe. And you will discover that there are lots of people who care very much about what you believe and are ready to let you know about it, right? So we have not headed into this kind of wishy-washy relativist uh, miasma uh, that we were worried about. Instead, we've got this kind of cancel culture. Um, and it's on both sides, right? I mean, there's, there's a progressive version of this um, that we might run into um, pretty often. Um, there's a conservative version of, of the same thing. That was put on display really publicly last year. Remember, remember all those Republican primaries where candidates uh, got, it actually became a verb, they got primaried, right? There were lots of Republican candidates who lost um, because they didn't demonstrate sufficient loyalty to former President Trump, right? It was a purity test, uh, and they failed it. Why is that so tempting? Why are these purity tests alluring? Why are these powerful at all? Um, C.S. Lewis has this great essay uh, called The Inner Ring. Um, I, won't, I won't read from it. Most, most of the content you can get right there from the title, but it is worth reading. Um, as he talks about the allure of being on the inside, being in the inner ring, being in the room where it happens, so to speak. Um, Right, this, 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 this desire, this temptation, not to be deemed unclean and on the outside, um, but, to be, but to be welcomed in. But this is clearly also not the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. He deliberately went to those who were deemed unclean by their society and, and welcomed them in. So these are three forms of unity that we will hear about Democratic unity with its logic of a common vision, imperial unity with its logic of assimilation, religious unity, the logic of purity. Um, none of those things are the kinds of unity that what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, I would go further. Um, I'm riffing on something one of my advisors said here um, to, to, to say that, that actually those three kinds of unity are opposed to what Jesus is after. Why do I say opposed? Think about it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the democratic mob, the imperial power, the religious tribe, they were all present and accounted for. And for a moment, at least, they found unity as they cried out with one voice, crucify. These are opposed to what Jesus is about in the world. True unity is unity found in Christ. It is unity found in being connected to the one who gave himself for us. The one who forgave those who were killing him while they were doing it. True unity is found in loving what he loves. In being taken up into the being of the triune God that circle of love that I described earlier. So let me talk about what it does. We'll end with this. Simply put, Jesus says that this kind of unity makes the Father known. And if you remember, we've been seeing this throughout the Gospel of John, what he wants more than anything else is for the Father to be known because this is eternal life. He said that in verse 3 of this, of this prayer. 
Eternal life is that they know God and the Son whom God has sent. He wants the Father to be glorified. And what he's saying here is that this kind of unity puts the glory of God on display. Verse 21, he says that they may, excuse me, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And in fact, it's, it's not just a witness to a watching world. This kind of unity is a witness internally too. It witnesses to us. Jesus says in verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. These have been convinced. These have come to know you. So it's an internal witness. What Jesus has been saying all the way through this discourse, what he's summing up here, let me, let me just put together a bunch of things that he has said. He has said, when you abide in me, when you bear fruit, when you obey my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, when you lay down your lives for one another, when you love each other sacrificially, when you do these things, you prove that you are my disciples and my Father is glorified. And that is what he wants more than anything in the world, is that his Father would be glorified. And our unity, our love for one another, our willingness to lay down our lives for each other sacrificially is what demonstrates that to a watching world. I'll make one final comment. This, of course, all presupposes that this unity that we share is visible, right? Um, the world seeing this. See, the world, those other forms of unity, um, they all make a certain sense to the world, right? They're all understandable. We may not like them all, but they make sense. Like, if you take imperial unity, for instance, like if you look at some autocrat who has unified his society by taking everybody who disagrees with him and putting them in prison or deporting them or executing them, and, and what's left is this homogenous group um, that, that, that is very united. And, and you say, well, of course they're united. And it, it's, it's, of course we don't agree with that. We don't think it's a good thing, but it makes sense. You say, I, I see how that leads to unity, right? Um, but if we have a unity that not only doesn't depend on common vision or assimilation or purity, but that can even be robust and can persist in spite of the fact that we don't have a common vision and we don't demand assimilation and we don't have purity tests. If we have that kind of unity, that's weird. That is not going to make sense. That is going to cause the world and us to ask, what is going on? Who is at work here? That's how God's glory gets put on display. But again, it, it presupposes that this is visible. So the last question I want to put to you is simply, are you praying for this? Are you praying for the unity of our church? Are you praying for the unity of the church across denominations? Are you praying for unity within our denomination? Um, you can come and talk to us elders about stuff that's happening in our denomination right now. Um, that kind of threatened the unity of, of our church. Uh, we would love to have you praying with us for these things. 
Um, because Jesus wants the unity of the church to be visible, uh, to be seen. He, he wants this kind of unity that does not make sense to a watching world uh, to be on display that his Father might be glorified. We have the opportunity to enter into this unity right now in two different ways. One is prayer, um, and the other is this table, because this table is itself not only a sign but a seal um, of the unity that we enjoy with one another. So let's bow our heads one more time and let's pray before we come.